This is the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast episode 6. I'm Matt and today I'm going to be reviewing and moaning about some geeky stuff. On today's show I have some geek news including Has Gal Gadot got the wrong end of the stick about Wonder Woman 3? Agatha, Coven of Chaos? The Deadpool rumoured cast list keeps growing? Hugh Jackman and Secret Wars? And where the Marvel's ending will lead to? I also have a spoiler-full Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem review. I have a review of a hidden gem, Heroes from back in the day. I also have my top 10 powers from Heroes and what I would do with them. I have a comic to read before you die with the main theme of the character dying in, as I've done for the last few weeks, and my character of the week. Geek News. James Gunn has denied that there's a third woman Wonder Woman film in development. Did Gal Gadot get the wrong end of the stick, or was it just wishful thinking on her behalf? James Gunn has literally sank the hopes of every fan in the, of the Snyderverse over the last few months. He's killed off loads of characters. Well, not killed off, but you know what I'm trying to say. He's he's killed the idea of them coming back. So Cavill's gone. Even Affleck I could have dealt with. But, you know, he's, getting, he's, he's cleaning house, basically. He's even let the Flash movie kind of shit all over the work of Zack Snyder and the Justice League. So, Zack Snyder did the special effects for Justice League, um, his version anyway, in his basement from what I can see, and Warner Brothers had a whole studio devoted to CGI and made it look like a whole heap of garbage. I'm pretty sure I could have done more convincing CGI on my mobile phone. The fact that she, the fact that Gal Gadot has come out and said said this, whether she's you know been misquoted or not, would suggest that she's been told that it was happening. Whether she has heard it from Patty Jenkins, who directed the first and second film, or she's heard it straight from Gunn's universe-destroying mouth is a different story. Like I said previously, I would not be heartbroken if Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman was to disappear. I think if you're cleaning house, make it spotless. The fact that Gunn is uh, still saying that the Blue Beetle is in in his long-term plans for the DC Expanded Universe says that he hasn't got a clue what he's doing. A new Superman movie, great. I can get on board with that. Batman, great. Wonder Woman, maybe with a few uh, with a new actress, great. Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, even a new Flash movie, but pinning pinning hopes on a poorly advertised Blue Beetle, no matter how high it's rating on Rotten Tomato, it just seems a bit silly to me. Agatha Coven of Chaos brings back Catherine Hayne as um, as Agatha. Um, we last saw her in the finale of One Division, and the alleged synopsis for the series says that a mysterious boy wakes her from a, from the spell and asks her for help. She then forms a coven with the with the women of Westview to enter the Witch's Road, a place where wishes can come true. Brilliant. Um, the beauty of the series is that it's a blank canvas. Agatha has never had her own comic, comic series. She's been in comics, but she's never had one. Uh, which means the writers are not stepping on anyone's toes or going, they're not going to get any flack about going off canon for the character. The series will be part of Phase 5 of Marvel, and allegedly it's, uh, it will show us the fate of Wanda Maximoff after the film. So, you know, that could, you know, or during the film anyway. Um, Wanda is apparently on the Witch's Road, which grants wishes. Um, we would know, we we all know Wanda's wish, so I'm assuming kids and Vision. It's rumored that Joe Locke, um, an actor, he will be playing Wanda's teenage son Wiccan in the series, which might set up bringing Wanda back to the MCU. Wiccan being included also sets up Young Avengers projects. Uh, it's been suggested by the amount of young heroes that they've had in the MCU over the years. The series is set to air in November next year and will be nine episodes long, which is slightly more than the average. Deadpool fans are allegedly in for a treat. I myself am not the biggest fan of the films, um, but even I have to say that I'm looking forward to the cameos. Hugh Jackman, although if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I'd have said that his character had been well overused, especially for a character that wasn't one of the original X-Men in the comics. Even I am looking forward to his newest portrayal as the Canadian mutant. So, you know, hopefully it's going to live up to some of our expectations. So it's got lots of characters allegedly reprising their roles from all over the Foxverse and parts of the MCU. So we've got lots of, you know, People such as Brian Cox as William Stryker, Halle Berry as Storm, Famke Jensen as um, Jean Grey, James Marsden as Cyclops. We've got Owen Wilson as Mobius, um, 
Ben Affleck as Daredevil, Jennifer Garner as Electra, Elizabeth Olsen's Wanda Maximoff, Daphne Keane back as X-23, um, Rebecca Moromagin as Mystique, Lee Schreiber as Sabretooth, Tom Elderson as Loki, Julian McManon as Doctor Doom, Patrick Stewart as Professor X, and Ian McKellen as Magneto. Hiddleston and Wilson are still playing their roles, so it shouldn't take them much to get back into character. Although, Tom Hiddleston's Loki version is a variant of his Loki character. Elizabeth Olsen's Wanda is apparently alive in another dimension, as I've said earlier. So we could this could be that version, or it could be another version. Patrick Stewart was also last seen in um, Like One Day, in that film that should not be named, so I'm not going to go into that too much. All of the above would be awesome in the film. I think that yeah, with everything that the MCU has done with the multiverse as of late, that the realm of possibilities is endless, and I kind of feel like maybe Ryan Reynolds is really like, you know, trying to zone in on that, to try and make the best film for us. So, the new characters that you might see in the film are allegedly Channing Tatum's Gambit, which was promised years ago through a solo film, but it never came to be. We've seen a version of Gambit in X-Men Origins, which let us not forget, um, was where we first saw Ryan Reynolds first become Wade Wilson. Taylor Kitsch um, was Gambit from the movie, and I kind of would have preferred to see him as Gambit in a more comic-accurate suit. Uh, I don't know how true this is, but Taron Egerton has been pegged to play a variant of Wolverine, and I kind of feel like, I'm not sure if the internet has just kind of brought that one together, I'm not sure. Uh, I actually think it would be pretty cool. Allegedly, Taylor Swift is rumoured to play Dazzler in the movie, although I'm not sure how that would work. The film is being said uh, to be the no way home of the Fox universe. The possibilities are endless. With that being said, Hugh Jackman is allegedly in talks to reprise his role in the upcoming Secret uh, Avengers Secret Wars. He is allegedly going to be a big part of the film, so I'm not sure if they're allegedly pitting him to battle against the Hulk, so who knows. In the comics, the pair have fought countless times over the years, with Wolverine being able to take the beating and heal up. Kevin Feige uh, has seen the popularity of Spider-Man No Way Home when bringing back previous Spider-Man into the fold. Uh, He'd be a fool not to take advantage of the idea of bringing back characters from different franchises and universes when you have a film that can span the multiverse itself. If they could get Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield back to fight alongside the Avengers, although I have heard recently that Andrew Garfield is in talks as well, so who knows, it, r- rumours are all over, the, it's rife for it, It's just there's just no need in all the rumours, So, although all of this is on hold until the right strikes have been resolved. And finally on Geek News, I have the Marvel's director, Nia DaCosta, confirms that the film's ending is directly related to Avengers Secret War. Um, which would suggest that unfortunately we have to watch the Marvels. Great, can't wait. Can't get enough of Brie Larson's Captain Marvel, yay! Anyway, the trailer looks okay, to a certain extent, if you can get you know, over certain people. So I'll give it a try, although I feel like a little snippet from um, Secret Wars will be a reason for me to watch. So what I have next is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem Review. There will be spoilers ahead, so I apologise in advance if you haven't watched it. So, I've been trying for a few weeks to convince my daughters to go with me to see Mutant Mayhem. I finally convinced them, so we headed off to the local theatre, loaded up on goodies, and took our seats waiting patiently for the film to start. The thing, the first thing I'll comment on is the animation style in the film, which I think is outstanding. Its electric style and rough sketched outlines is brilliant, and somehow brings this realistic and, you know, brilliant tone and highlights the gritty streets in new york that i think they were going for the character designs are amazing so if you think back to the teenage mutant Ninja turtles from the 90s or hero turtles if you're from the uk all the turtles look the same you know i think eventually on the toys they distinguish them slightly by giving them different toned colors to their skin but you know cartoon wise they're all the same color and you could only distinguish them from the masks over the last few years, they have tried to give them their own body types to go with the personalities that the writers have built for them. Generally, the two turtles that are most distinguishable these days are Raphael and Donatello. Raph has this bulky appearance and Donatello normally has the glasses, which seems to have become a bit of a trademark, a trademark for both of them in the last few incarnations of the character. So in this film, with, with or without the mask, you can tell them apart, which I think adds to the allure of the animation. The, the voice acting is on point. 
So I'm going to start with the most recognisable voice for me. So it's Giancarlo Esposito. Um, he's in The Mandalorian. He's in The Boys. He's in quite a few. He's in lots of stuff. So uh, he's not in it for a great amount of time. So that that to me is not a great thing. But he does make an impression, which actually had me wanting him to turn back up later on in the film. He plays Baxter Stockman, who's been part of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Thirst from the beginning. Master Splinter is played by Jackie Chan, which shouldn't work, but it does. You know, I think it's because they use the comedic tone all the way through the film, and I feel like Jackie Chan's voice and stuff like that works with it, so it's he's brilliant in it as well. So the tales are actually played by teenagers for the first time that I can remember. The fact that it's taken this long to put a teenager in one of the four roles baffles me, but I feel like acting rules for kids are so different, so I assume that's played a big part in the fact that no child has ever been cast in one of the roles. So being that these kids, they need to be schooled so that the studios aren't breaking any laws or anything like that. So I'm assuming that restricts the scenes, yeah, the shooting for the, the shooting of the scenes. So Donatello is played by Micah Rabbi, who is great in the role. Donatello is normally my least favourite turtle out of the four, but his voice plus the great character design has probably made him my favourite turtle from the film. The story opens with Baxter Stockman, who is experimenting on animals, trying to create a family of mutants for himself to quell his loneliness. Um, he is a rogue ex-employee of TCRI, which has also been a part of the Turtles mythos since the beginning, since 1984. So one thing that I loved about the film was that blending it was the blending of the old stories with the new things go wrong for baxter when the tcr tcri soldiers storm his house looking to take him and his experiments so that they can use use them and replicate the replicate his way like selling it to the military so baxter tries to run as, as you would but ends up being restrained the soldiers are taken out one by one by baxter's experiment a mutant fly one of the soldiers shoots wildly trying to kill the fly but hitting a gas cylinder causing an explosion destroying all of the ooze by one canister. In the explosion Baxter is killed which I think is a mistake you know, to kill him off that soon. The brilliant voice acting is the main reason why but it worked for the story I'm, I'm assuming. So, um, The rest of the mutant specimens are taken into custody and the last canister of ooze is knocked down into the sewers therefore creating the turtles. One thing that I wish they put in, although I'm not sure if they could legally, was the Daredevil connection between yeah that um, Eastman and Laird tried to put in. So the idea was that they all they always wrote turtles as if you know the ooze that created them was um, was the same accident that created Matt Myerdock and made him Daredevil. But I kind of wish they'd they'd put a little bit of a you know you know an easter egg in there do you know what i mean just for us avid fans that have yeah like you know i've been fans since the 80s i feel like that would have that would have been a nice shower for me but I, you know i understand why they can't put anything like that in so the story then jumps 15 years into the future showing the turtles masking and weaponing up so their first mission is restocking the, their food and toiletries they've been sent out on a mission by splinter who's given them a list basically so they end up getting all the you know getting all their products that they need and then they start heading home but the three of the turtles um, mikey raff and donnie decide that they want to go and see an outdoor film leo goes not wanting to do it not wanting to disobey his dad basically so they head off to brooklyn and they watch ferris bueller so ferris bueller is played on there on this big screen and it's 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 our version of ferris bueller it's not an animated version and i think that kind of style works for the film so the film is rife with the turtles' insecurities and the fact that they long to be normal teenagers. So, meanwhile, while all this is going on, the, the news reports are going on in the background and stuff. So, it shows that um, the, this mysterious gang leader, Superfly, has struck again, stealing a piece of high-tech equipment. Um, he gets people to steal it for him. Um, these people, these men who steal all the all the stuff for him, basically, when they when they see Superfly, they get killed. So Superfly seems to be this giant fly. So we're all assuming it's the giant. It's the it's the adult version of the fly from the beginning of the film. So the turtles after this return home, where Splinter, who, as far as I know, they never call him by his name. He's aptly referred to as Dad, which to me always seemed like they should call him that. So Splinter retells the story of how they all came to be, 
and why they should hate humans. So this is the part of the film that fell flat for me. It was maybe the only part of the film that I thought, no, that's wrong. I think that anyone like me who has any prior knowledge of the Turtles films or Turtles series or Turtles comics would say that the Turtles learn to be nin- ninjas. They learn ninjutsu from their Master Splinter, who in different incarnations, incarnations of the series has learned it differently. So in the 90s cartoon, um, he was a human called Hamato Yoshi. Um, he was... He, Using the ooze, he was ended up turning into a you know a rat man, and he knew ninja. He knew ninjutsu, and he trained the turtles to be ninja and be one with the shadows. Another incarnation. So the original incarnation was that Splinter was the pet rat of Hamato Yoshi, and he learned and mimicked uh, mimicked the martial arts style of his master, and then. He got mutated into a giant rat and then trained the turtles and raised them. So there are different versions of this. And I think for me, this particular version that they created, it it just didn't work. So I kind of feel like this particular story that they, they, they used in the film is owned in on the comedy. So Splinter raised the turtles who have an obsession with the top side. Splinter eventually decides to take them up there because he loves them so much and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to deny them that. So while they're up there, they bump into a woman and the woman, you know, initially says sorry, but then sees Splinter's different and calls him a rat man. And then everyone starts persecuting them. One, you know, they get knocked down. Donatello gets knocked into the road. Um, Splinter saves him, but that was the last time they went to the top side, you know, where they blend, you know, they went round the people. So when he gets back home, he decides that they need to find a way to defend themselves. This really fell flat for me. It was like they watch TV and learn self-defense, then somehow become ninjas. You know, I get that they're, you know, fictional Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle characters. I get that, but this to me just didn't make any sense. It's it, it slightly ruined it for me to a certain extent. I know that it was meant to be a kids' film; it's meant to be funny, but it's like the films were like rife with a lot of adult jokes. You know, nothing rude or anything, but enough that yeah, you know, any adult going to watch it could have could have a giggle. All right, it, it just didn't make sense to me. It slightly ruined it. Although the flashback is quite vague. It's funny, but it can also be amended in the second film or the accompanying series. I get that. But for me, I kind of feel like they they needed to actually focus in on a little bit more of Splinter's heritage and not just make him a New York rat who spoke with you know, an Asian accent. I kind of feel like it just didn't need to happen. You know, you could have you could have said anything at that point, but then just never. So after this, the turtles subsequently get themselves grounded for a month for disobeying Splinter. So after the month, they're playing on a rooftop, being teenage boys, doing dangerous things. After an unfortunate ninja star throw, they meet April O'Neil, who is a teenager who longs to be a journalist and get away from the reputation she never asked for. After they, you know, they get a bike accidentally stolen from her, and then they get the bike back. They drum up this friendship that leads to the essence of the story. So the essence of the story for me is the turtles want to be normal. April wants to get rid of this reputation she's had. So they drum up this deal where it's going to be mutually mutually beneficial for the for the lot of them. So the turtles will look like heroes and they will be accepted by the public while April will make herself look like she can be a journalist and get rid of a reputation that she got from got at school for throwing up when she gets live on camera. So the idea is this is how they're going about. It's foolproof or not. Anyway, so it shows the turtles taking out rival gangs, trying to find out where Superfly is, while April tapes them doing it so that she can eventually, you know, put this out to the world. So when they figure it out, um, figure out where Superfly is going to be, they wait patiently for him to show up. When he shows up, it's it's well beyond their wildest dreams. They find a team of mutants. Um, the turtles believe themselves and Splinter to be the only ones. So, when a team of mutants show up, they they you know they're torn between you know saving the city and actually you know 
having, you know, some sort of a, you know, other family, cousins as such. So, the team of mutants is packed with celebrity voices. So, it's Seth Rogen as Bebop, John Cena as Rocksteady, Rose Byrne as Leatherhead, Natasha Demetrou is Wingnut, Paul Rudd is Mondo Gecko, Post Malone is Ray Filet, Hannibal Buress is Genghis Frog, and Ice Cube plays Superfly. So, I feel like all this helps that Seth Rogen has most of these actors' mobile numbers, and he's worked with most of them on more than one occasion. So these characters turned up in the 90s cartoon and have made their way back with a vengeance. The story continues with the mutants and the turtles bonding over bowling, then the turtles discovering the plan to, you know, make all animals into mutants and kill off all the humans. The turtles play along with the plan and end up in in the back of the van with three of the mutants driving the van with the with the component in the back so the turtles decide that they need to do something so they end up slamming on the brake while while they do this the three mutants fly through the window and then donatello drives the van away so um a chase scene ensues and there were the mutants retrieving the component and the turtles getting taken into custody by tcri who have planted um a homing device you know a tracking device on the components so that's how they found them so the turtles are then taken to tcri and milked for their blood yeah i did say milked and it's said far too many times in this film just to make you aware so april goes to splinter so she was taken down into the sewer once she knows whereabouts they live splinter doesn't know about her so he she she turns up and asks for his help. Splinter hates human, but he hates humans, but she convinces him to come with her anyway. So meanwhile, Superfly and his mates make the machine, and most of the mutants have bonded a little bit with the turtles, and they're kind of starting to see that Superfly might be wrong, but they're going along with him anyway because he's the big bad. So Splinter and April go to TCRI and they save the turtles, showing that Splinter actually, you know, he learned quite a lot from those um, those videos that he watched and those those television martial art programs that allegedly made him a ninja. So he he takes out all the all the guards, frees the turtles, and then as they're leaving, the ter- Leonardo tells April that she needs to go home and they need to go back to the sewers and stuff so they're going to stop Superfly and then they're going home and they're just going to stick to the shadows. April leaves Leonardo and the other turtles go and that looks like where it's going to end but we all know it's not so the idea is they they head to um, Superfly's base, they confront him and eventually after a few you know past words the other mutants join the turtles and they try and stop superfly so superfly is pretty strong he's he's able to hold them all back but eventually he gets sent into the river with the machine that can basically mutate you know animals so the machine mutates him further so mutates superfly so he absorbs some marine life making him giant he then flies off and absorbs more animals from the zoo then heads to manhattan to go on a rampage the turtles and the other mutants race to the city and try to stop the new gigantic superfly while trying to help their labelled as villains. So April races to Channel 6 News to try and tell everyone that turtles are the good guys while Leo and the others realise that they have, have been trying to be heroes for the wrong reasons and decide that if they're going to be heroes they've got to do it for the right, right reasons. The turtles come up with an idea to use a TCRI, re- TCRI weapon that can reverse the mutagen process and turn Superfly back into just a fly. So, while they're doing this, April convinces the public that the Turtles are good guys. So, after almost getting crushed, and Splinter coming to the realisation that not all humans are bad, they win the day. So, they eventually, they they end up firing the mutagen inside Superfly, and turning him back into just a normal fly. So, after all this, the mutants that, yeah, everyone living with Superfly, end up living with the Turtles, Splinter and their cockroach, who's called Scumbag, form a weird, really weird relationship where they're they're, they're kissing for quite a bit of it, and it's just a bit weird. Um, And now they're living together. So the film is fun and family friendly. Yeah, even if you can get past the weird rat, the the rat 
cockroach kissing part, I suppose. Uh, I don't like the fact that they ignored the Japanese archetype for Master Splinter, and I wish the ninja aspect of the turtles was better explained. I like the happy ending where the city accepts them and they go to school. I, I do like that. I kind of feel like that's something that hasn't been done before. Although I'm not exactly convinced that the government wouldn't come and grab them up and experiment on them. So the mid the mid the mid credit scene teases their Shredder in the next film, which was to be expected. I kind of like the fact that Shredder wasn't used off the bat. He has been the main villain in a lot of the films. I like the callback to the nineties TV show, which was my era. Um, there are lots of jokes in the film that adults will understand, but not to the point where the film crosses any lines. I feel the story got somehow predict somewhat predictable, and as it went on. Once you know the origin story, it was quite obvious where the story was going. I'd, that said, I like the fact that it focuses on the sadness of the turtle, you know, the sadness the turtles feel. Um, although, I would say it was an upbeat film. It centres around the idea behind the turtles not fitting into society while absolutely craving to be normal. It's something that hasn't been seen in a turtles feature film. That's you know, that's one bonus to the whole thing, that it's something brand new. If anything, I'd say it was the complete opposite of any other film. The Turtles in most films of the series know that they need to keep hidden, while Mutant Mayhem focuses on them wanting to be normal teenagers and wanting to be out in public. I give the film a solid 7.5 out of 10. While the animation and the character design are amazing, it loses points for me because it doesn't explore Sprinter's um, Japanese side whatsoever. Or explain really how the Turtles became ninjas. Other than that, great film. Definitely deserves a watch. Save the cheerleader, save the world. So, anyone who remembers this quote, Save the cheerleader, save the world, probably remembers the first kick-ass series of heroes. So for me, heroes redefined the superhero series and gave it almost a mystical feel that they were only just discovering their powers and you didn't know where it come from. It... I feel like the first season was just brilliant. It ran from 2006 to 2010 and showed us just how cool having a superpower could be. So Heroes focuses on a group of people from all around the globe who just discovered that they have extraordinary abilities after a solar eclipse. So the issue I had with the first season was that the creator, Tim Kring, he made the hero and the main, the main hero and the main villain far too powerful. So I know most people are thinking that's that's not a problem. We've got Superman out there, but I kind of feel like everyone's got some sort of a problem with Superman that you know they think he's far too overpowered. Peter Petrelli was the main protagonist and could empathically mimic anyone's ability. So empathic mimicry is where he basically he's around them to begin with, you know, talks to them just in their in their vicinity, and if he thinks about that person. He can then use their power if they were powered, obviously. So he can basically use anyone's ability as long as he's just somewhere around them. Doesn't have to touch them. Doesn't have to, you know, like, you know, use and do anything to gain the power other than just being around them. He's like a sponge. So basically, overpowered is an understatement because he's around pretty much every one of the heroes. In the first season, so he's like he's strong. He's fat, you know he's strong. He can fly. He can stop time. He can do all sorts. He can heal from any wound. So he can turn invisible. So he just far too overpowered. And I get in the first season he wasn't in full control, but by the end of the by the second season and towards the end of the second season, he's figured it all out. He can use the powers at will, one by one, without any repercussions to him. In the first season, at least it looks like he's struggling, but I kind of feel like they got to the second part and it was during the writer's strikes of back then and the season was shorter and it basically, I think they thought, well, if we write him struggling with the powers again, then it's going to take up most of the season. So instead, they had him in pretty much control of it. So other than that, we had Siler, who was the antagonist of the series and he was also severely overpowered and in full control of his abilities from the beginning. So Sila has a nasty ability of soaring into people's heads and taking their abilities. His power is that he can see how things work, including people. So he goes inside their brains, takes their ability, and it is. They fixed the problem by series three for Peter. So Peter got depowered by his dad in season three. So his dad could absorb abilities as well, but by touch, and he permanently takes them from Peter. So 
eventually, by the end of season three, Peter gets back a weaker, crappier version of his power through a drug, a wonder drug that can give people abilities. So his new power is that he can absorb people's abilities, replicate them, but he has to touch that one person, and that's the only power that he can replicate. So he can only do one at a time. The best character in the whole series is Hiro Nakamura. So Hiro was born in Japan. He's the heir to their, you know, this big company, and his dad is this badass, uh, this badass samurai warrior that's basically played by um, Zulu from um, Star Trek. Um, the idea is Hiro is the master of time and space. He can stop time. He can time travel. He can teleport. He has the best power as well. So the great thing about having a time traveler in your series is that he's a universal do-over. Anything that goes wrong in the whole series, time travel can fix it in some way. can also mess it up completely, but realistically, if something goes wrong, time travel can fix it. The first series shows the growing pains that each of the individuals has, whether it's in their personal lives or with their powers, leading them all to come together to stop the bomb from going on off in New York. So the bomb, being an exploding man, who they all thought was Sila, turns out to be Peter. So that is how the first season goes. So the, the series has become a cult phenomenon, barely being spoken about these days, unfortunately. Um it, it did not help that the later seasons after season one were not as highly received, leading to the series being cancelled after season four, which to me is a shame because I believe that season four got well back on track. I kind of feel like season two, you could see that the writer strikes were there, but it had all the good bones for everything. It was, you know, it was, it was a good series. It just didn't have the same mysticism or lore of the first. So third season was broke down into two parts so there was a part you know part one part two basically i think it ended up being season three and four so season three was actually a good season it was in villains and it focused more in on peter peter and nathan's dad so um arthur petrelli was the villain of this particular arc um and showed a lot more of the villain side of the heroes universe so the idea is lots more villains in it it was pinning the two companies in the whole series together so primatech versus pioneers primatech had all generally speaking the heroes on it pioneers had all the villains on it so it was pinning them together and it all culminates with off petrelli's death and nathan joining the the villain side to mass produce the you know the drug that can give you a power and this leads um peter to injecting himself regaining a power so that he can save his brother this causes a rift and by the fourth season or the second part of the third season um the government as uh, nathan has involved the government in rounding up all the people with abilities so all all of the heroes are being rounded up, they're all being put on a plane and they're all being taken to a prison camp. So that's what season four is about. It's about fixing that mistake. So it ends up with Sila trying to take over as the president. He has a shape-shifting ability now and he is going to absorb, absorb the DNA of the president and become the president. And then by, by season five or part five whatever it was called they have a group of hero a group of powered people that are living in a carnival and their leader samuel can cause earthquakes but the more pe- more people with powers around him he gets more powerful and it's about him trying to bring the characters from you know the first four seasons of heroes to him so that he can then become more powerful and it's about them stopping him. So I think by the end of the end of, you know, part five or chapter five, they they got well back on track and I kind of feel like it's a real shame that they decided to just pull the plug. Because they left it on somewhat of a cliffhanger where um one of the heroes, um Claire, she'd she can regenerate. She'd outed herself to the public on camera and it was going to show how, you know, all the powered people were going to start coming out of the woodwork and, 
you know, making themselves known. But years later, they tried to recapture the magic with Heroes Reborn. So, unfortunately, it failed. It, it was like a, a disaster. So, I think the issue they had was only a couple of the main characters returned from the original cast, being to the series struggling to bring the story together. So, they eventually, about halfway through the series, got at least a couple of members of the main cast back. So, they got Hiro Nakamura and uh, Suresh back. And that to me was probably the best episode and it worked it, it was nice to see the chemistry between them but i think it was a little too late in my eyes so they needed them to be recurring characters from the off not just in that one episode so and with the new characters not being as good and charismatic as the originals plus the maybe the special effects not being as great in the in the spin-off i kind of feel like it wasn't as good. I mean, the magic of the first season is something to be emulated. So, if any writer or screenwriter can recreate that magic that and magic and mysticism that the first season had, and keep it going, whether it's in a future season or in books or in their own series, then they're onto a winner. The top ten powers from heroes. So, at number ten, precognition. Being able to draw the future would be pretty cool, but at the same time, it would have its own drawbacks. People would think you were weird there if you always knew what was going to happen. People would fear you. They'd fear you would draw something about them. Definitely a power to use in secret. It might be an anonymous letter describing future events rather than an in-person thing. Although the initial character who has the ability is a drug adult artist who thinks he is going mad. I kind of feel like you can almost understand why. I think it's portrayed really well and gives a realistic view on how the power could be used. At number 9 I have phasing. I think this is one of the cooler powers in the series and falls a little lower on the list because the character using it, not, it is not in the series that long. DL uses the power to escape from prison, walking through walls to escape. He is surprisingly shot in the head and killed, showing that his phasing isn't, autonomous, isn't an autonomous thing. So I kind of feel like he loses points on that. Would I have gone gone places I wasn't supposed to? Absolutely. Would I use the power badly? Probably. I think, uh, and I, the more I think about having a superpower, the more I think I'd probably be a villain. At number eight, I have super speed. So the main character that uses is Daphne Millbrook. The reason that a cool superpower like super speed is not higher on the list is the fact that, like DL, she is shot and her power doesn't grant her fast thought. If she could think quickly, she wouldn't have been shot. She can dart around the world with no problem, but can't dodge a bullet. She's a thief, which unfortunately, without donning some spandex and becoming the world's first superhero, you're gonna become a villain or a thief with this power. She also couldn't outrun a nuclear split explosion in one of the in one of the alternate timelines, which seems like a waste of a super, a super speed power. At number seven, we have probably the best superpower to a certain extent: healing, the most selfless power, at least wielded by one of the least selfless characters in the whole series. Lindemann is a gangster who only heals when it suits his own agenda. The idea of having a healing touch would be sought after power, leading to people seeking you out to heal their ailments. This might be the only power on the list that I would use nicely. I might get a job at the hospital, heal some cancer patients, probably be higher on the list, but I'm all about the pizzazz. At number six, I have Technopathy. So, technopathy is basically being able to talk to machines. So, Micah Sanders is a kid for for the entire original series and returns in Reborn as a rebel. He can talk to machines and make them do what he wants. There's a scene in the first season where he gets an ATM machine. Or an ATM, not machine, because it's already the M's already means machine. Don't need to keep saying it. He gets the ATM to give him money. The powers to alluring for someone like me. I can imagine me being out on a drunken night out and using it, and abusing it, and coming home with thousands of pounds. I uh, think this power is best off not being real because I would definitely use it for personal gain. At number five, we have shapeshifting. This power is stolen by Siler in season four and used quite frequently. The power has a drawback that a person stays in the form too long, they start to lose themselves. I think I'd be a bit of a git with this power, messing with people and using it, using it to be a general fool. I suppose with a power like that, I'd be more likely to be a spy. I think I think I'd be up there. 
At number four, we have telepathy. So I think I would be most dangerous with this one. I like knowing what people are thinking, so this could be the best and worst power for me. Anyone who says that they wouldn't abuse this power, this power or any of these powers, is a liar. It would be a god, it would be a god-given talent, and I would be wrong. It would be wrong for me not to use it like that. So that's me justifying all the bad stuff I would do. Matt Parkman is the main telepath in the series and becomes pretty powerful, but at the same time loses a part of himself. Uh, yeah, he seems to go mad a little bit during season four. Um, has it or season five technically? Uh, pretty big drawback to the power in my eyes. In at number three, we have flight. I think this would be the best one for me. I can't really do anything other than travel using it. I can't become a villain realistically. Perfect. Sign me up for this power. That's probably the best one for me. Don't want to be a villain, but I kind of feel like the other ones are too alluring for it. Um, it would also save me a fortune on fuel. I'd be flying everywhere. The main character uses this, who is Nathan Petrelli, who in my eyes didn't use the power enough. I think it's probably one of the coolest powers and I, that I wish I had. In at number two, I have time travel, time manipulation, teleportation. So Hiro Nakamura is the best character in the Hero series. He has a moral compass that won't let him misuse his powers. Me, on the other hand, I would be teleporting everywhere. I would stop time to get out of things. I would stop time and move people or things. I would teleport people to other places for fun. I would be a bit of a knob with this power. And at number one, I have empathic mimicry. So this is just me being greedy. I would, it would be so that I could have all the powers. As long as I've been around the person, I can have the power. Like I said earlier, Peter Petrelli was far too overpowered when he had this power. So likely anyone who had this power would be overpowered. Unless no one had an ability. So that's the only drawback to this power. It, if no one had an, an ability in the first place, empathic mimicry is useless and you'd be powerless. And that's my roundup of the top 10 heroes' powers. This week's commentary before you die is The Flash, the fastest man alive. So this is another one that culminates with the hero of the story dying in the end. So the series came out in 2006 and is only 13 issues long and covers Bart Allen's life from, it starts from being powerless to being the living embodiment of the Speed Force to dying saving Central City. So after Infinite Crisis, after the Infinite Crisis crossover, Wally West, accompanied by his wife and infant twins, was swept into the Speed Force, leaving the mantle of the Flash empty. Bart fought against Superboy Prime, and while he was doing that, he got lost in the Speed Force as a result. While there, he grew in age by four years. When he returned, he used up the last of his speed, allegedly, to help the heroes defeat Superboy Prime. So after the events of um, Infinite Crisis, he retired, leaving the uniform, leaving his Flash uniform with Jay Garrick. So eventually, Bart would take up the mantle, realising that his speed wasn't gone. The Speed Force was now inside him, making, making him the living embodiment of the Speed Force. So after his roommate Griffin gains superpowers and becomes a villain, Bart accepts his destiny and puts on the suit. So the series culminates in a plot to kill him. Iris West, his grandmother, returns to returns to the past from the future to save her grandson, believing that if she immobilizes him, he won't be he won't be able to die in the upcoming attack. We've also got Inertia, Bart's evil twin, um, evil twin, and still only sixteen, whereas Bart's in his Bart's twenty now. So he's his evil twin. He's behind the plot, and he's enlisted the Rogues' help. So the Rogues are the Flash villains. We've got Abracadabra, Mirror Master, Heatwave, Captain Gold, Pied Piper, the Trickster, and Weather Wizard. So they're all going to help him build a machine to stop time, allegedly. The Rogues take over the Flash Museum. So it all goes down in the Flash Museum. He's probably the only hero with his with his own museum, basically. So while Bart's in custody at this point at the police station for his involvement with an attack by Steppenwolf, one of the new gods. So Bart sees the clear and present danger to the public and outs himself as the Flash to the police. And then he races off to save the day. When Bart arrives, Inertia's real plan is revealed. He, he plans to drain the speed force from Bart so that he can use it again. So, whereas Inertia is still quick, he's not speed force quick. So he needs the speed force to be able to do everything that he was able to do before. So the rogues use the machine on Bart and they strip him of his speed. He stands there surrounded by the rogues, 
quite heroic in it. So Bart sees the Black Flash as well. So the Black Flash only appears when a speedster is about to die. So that's a bad omen. Especially when you, 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 your nan's already told you you're going to die. So at this point, Valerie, Bart's love interest and Star Labs, you know, star scientist, figures out that Inertia's machine is unstable and is about to blow if the Speed Force is not released from it. So, at this point, Bart decides to buy Valerie and his nan time. So, he basically, he fights off the roads. So, he uses techniques that he's learned while he's with the Teen Titans. So, he's learned a lot of martial arts from, from Robin. He's even got, back in the day, is one of, one, of his, one of his individual Flash powers was to read books and retain the information. Most Flashes can read the books dead quick, but only retain the information for a short amount of time. Bart was able to retain the information, so he's read lots of martial arts books, lots of anatomy books, so he's able to use that to his advantage. This to me shows that basically he's he's worthy of the mantle of the Flash without the powers, that he's shown what a true hero could do when push comes to shove. After this, he then chases after Inertia and beats him to a pulp. This leads the rogues into a panic where Captain Cold, Heatwave and Weather Wizard kill Bart. So, it's yeah, it's so bad because I kind of feel like at, at this point in 2006, they they you know they'd killed off quite a few DC characters at this point. So we we you know Superboy had died, Bart now died. It's like you were worried that the the Titans of this era were just all going to get wiped out. So the Rogues realise that they've made an error in judgment when they see Bart's face. They realise that he isn't the Flash that they fought for years. That he's just a kid. This one hit me hard, ending Bart's race and his run as the Flash after only 13 issues. I think it was a great ending, but at the same time, I feel like Bart deserved a little bit more. You know, I kind of feel like DC decided that Bart was a good successor, but at the same time, he he was better as, you know, Impulse, um, Kid Flash. I kind of feel like, I assume this was always the idea that they were going to bring Wally back, which... Unfortunately, Wally is my favourite Flash. He, he always will be. He, you know, he's probably the longest serving Flash in a way as well, and he's technically speaking the fastest Flash. We can have that debate another time. So, you know, it leads to Wally coming back from the Speed Force, Bart's death. So, it's a great story from start to finish, with great writing from Danny Bilson to start off with, ending in issue thirteen with Mark Guggenheim. The R team throughout is brilliant, giving us a great view of what Super Speed could be. If only the Flash movie could have taken some tips from some of the books, that would have made the movie even better. This is one character death that you won't get over anytime soon. The book is majorly deserving of being one of the comics you should read before you die, so get on it. And finally today, I have my character of the week, which is Master Splinter. So I've chosen Master Splinter because although I liked the film, Mute Mayhem was pretty good. I feel like they've done him dirty. The character has been around since 1984 and his stem with so much backstory and mythology that it just wasn't covered in the new movie. That said, I'm not saying that they won't cover it in the next film or in the series that's coming out. For all I know, they, that was their plan all along. So I'm going off what I know so far and in my eyes I feel like they've done him dirty. So I'm going to give you a roundup of some of his feats and a bit of a dive into his backstory. So in the original comic, um, and in the 90s live-action movie, Splinter was the pet rat of Hamato Yoshi and lived in Japan. He was intelligent for his species, learning ninjutsu from his master and mimicking his movements. In the original comic, Yoshi had a dispute with a ninja called Aroku Nagi, which ended with Aroku Nagi's death, leading Yoshi to then be killed later on by Nagi's brother Aroku Saki. So Aroku, Aroku Saki ends up being the shredder. So in the 1990 film, Nagi is removed completely, obviously trying not to confuse the viewers. It's the same idea, but basically, um, Hamato Yoshi has a problem with Saki, and Saki comes and kills him. Also in the movie, Splinter escapes from the cage and scars Saki's face. The story leads to the main turtle's backstory. So, Splinter finds himself in the sewers in New York, where he finds four baby turtles who are paddling in green ooze. The ooze mutates Splinter and the turtles into what we know these days so realistically mutant mayhem should have made some sort of reference to the backstory as it would have made the ninja aspect more realistic to me in 1987 in the 1987 cartoon it had a slightly different backstory which 
to a certain extent would have made more sense than the mess that was Splinter's backstory in Mutant Mayhem. So Splinter was Hamato Yoshi. Yoshi is an instructor for the Foot Clan and is framed by Saki. Yoshi escapes moving to New York and becoming a hermit in the sewers where he befriends a rat. The ooze combines Splinter's and the rat's DNA making him a humanoid rat. You know, same backstory with a slightly different twist to a you know to a certain extent. Each incarnation has a slightly different twist, as I've just said, but the the archetype is pretty similar all the way through. That's what was most disappointing about the new film for me. Although the new take did add you know humor to the character, it it just it just didn't do it for me. So IDW even do a comic where Splinter and the Turtles are reincarnations of Hamato Yoshi and Hamato Yoshi's sons. I feel that was that would have been an, an all right version of it. So to a certain extent, they could still do that in the next Mutant Mayhem film, but I kind of feel like you've you've left it so vague that anyone who's got any kind of idea about the character is a bit like well. I don't understand how they've become ninjas. I don't really understand, you know, why you'd even think to do martial arts. I just don't get it. So I feel with all the great incarnations and interpretation of the character, Mutant Mayhem's version could have been much better. In the 1987 cartoon, Splinter's relationship with the Turtles is much more of an instructor master than master father. Whereas in the 90s, 90s film, he was definitely an adoptive father to the Turtles. He has many feats which are mainly seen and received from the comics, although let us not forget that he took the shredder down in the 1990s live action movie after being held hostage for a long time with no more than a nunchuck. In the 2003 incarnation of the character, the cartoon, he possesses a, rep- a reputation as a ninja master. He's, had, he's a previous winner and of the Battle Nexus, which is a multi-dimensional fighting championship. In Rise of the TNT, the show shows Splinter being more of a comedy piece, but at the same time, it still shows you know one of the original archetypes of the character, where he was Hamato Yoshi, but with a slight twist, he'd run away from the Foot Clan to become a film star. Rise was never my cartoon, let's just say that anyway, but either way, I still think that was still a better backstory than what we got. Splinter has battled the Foot, Shredder, the Krangletron, Triceratons, Mutants and Ninja Warriors from other dimensions. Splinter has been, has been an evolved rat who knew ninjutsu, a ninja who became a rat man, an in, a reincarnated ninja from feudal Japan and most recent basic form of being just a rat who was mutated into a rat man. I feel like Master Splinter was done dirty, but you know being relegated to no more than a comedy piece. He deserves better, which hopefully can be rectified in the next film. So that's it for this week. Next week, I'll have the usual geek news. I'll be looking into another late 90s, early 2000s gem of a series, Roswell. I'll be taking a big look at the film Don't Worry Darling and giving you my honest take on it. I'll have a new comic to read before you die. And as always, I'll have my character of the week. I'm Matt, and this has been the Glasses by Day Keeper and I podcast. Thanks for listening.